spoilers for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. If you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, I would. It's very nice. Otherwise, literally bail out now because spoilers are about to happen in three, two, one. Captain Emily, if I had a nickel for every time I watched a piece of media where Hitler rising into power and the Nazis getting control over the world was a plot point, I would have two nickels. Uh, Man in the High Castle. Indiana Jones or do we have and the three? Dial of Destiny. Oh, God. Literally, at Captain Emily, so I just watched this movie. I I was trying to say this to the end, but I can't talk about this ah! episode without Please. talking about oh my God. The, the absolute synergy this had with Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny. <laughs> in Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny, the thing they are trying to go for is mm-hmm. a device developed by Archimedes, which opened time mm-hmm. rifts in time okay. and space. Like, can notice time rifts in time and space. And he he used a formula to plot where they are. In the mm-hmm. future, an evil Nazi finds this and tries to go back in time. Now, you might think it'd be to help restore Hitler. No, he wants to kill Hitler and take his place and lead the Nazis better than Hitler did. So in this wow. episode, when we had time travel and surprise Nazis rising to power and taking over everything, I lost my goddamned mind. I, Captain Emily, why am I being surrounded by Nazis? <laughs> oh my uh, God, in real life too, oof, everywhere. Oof. Welcome to the United States of America. Dun, dun, dun. And this is where I look in the camera like Simpsons style. Oh, yes. Um. This is wild. <laughs> this episode. Holy shit, Captain Emily. Yeah. Holy fucking yeah. shit. Yeah. Like they did the time travel again mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. went went into this really like one of the first times like they back to the future debt. They did the yep. entire thing. They did, oh, we have to blend in with the past. We mm-hmm. have to, you can't change the course of events. They did the mm-hmm. trope of you can't stop someone from dying because yeah. they will change history in a way that inextricably leads to Nazis. Holy yep. shit. <laughs> it always leads back to Nazis. It always oh, does. I mean, it's bad for me to be like, oh, I'm always you know, excited when Hitler pops up into things, but like, he's an excitable person. Like it's one yeah. of those things where it's just, you're just like, holy shit. Like the worst, one of the worst individual of history is just popping up again being like, Hey, remember me and all the ugly things that I did? Oh, you're watching sci-fi. Oh, okay. Here you go. I'm back. Oh, you're watching an adventure film. Oh, I'm here too. Oh, you're on the internet. Hi. Like, 
Like we can't, it is uh, like I, this piece of media made me realize how much of, of in a post, I'll just, we'll use fascism because I don't want to keep invoking that name, but it is mm-hmm. just so wild to me how we're reliving all of that again. And then the episode, they were dealing with having to relive all of that again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've been talking too much. Captain Emily, start talking. (laughs) Welcome to the city. I've gone. Welcome. I've gone full Missy. (laughs) Ah! Okay. Uh, I mean, it, it, look, dare I say this is the most iconic episode of Star Trek. Dare hell, I say it? Hell to the yeah. I Iconic is a state that we have used very liberally. Last episode, I said I apologize to all previous episodes that I called bad because that one was clearly worse on the most fun. In terms of us throwing the word iconic around, there. I mean, yeah. I would argue that Space Seed is, for me, the definitive mm-hmm. iconic episode, if we're, if we're having to rank it. But there are lots of iconic episodes. There are lots of tropes that extend into fiction. Holy fucking shit, did we open up an Ark of the Covenant and have iconic fly right in our fucking faces? Wow! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, fucking yeah. And and a certain seed of that can still be credited, that's right, to this episode's author, Harlan Ellison. it was directed by Joseph Pevney. Um, and I have hinted, I have hinted at the deep drama that went on in the creation of this episode, in its credits, in just Harlan Ellison existing. Oh, yes. I was going to say, world. Harlan Ellison has been a background character this entire mm-hmm. season. And it yep. really made me happy when I saw his, I, 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 I don't like sending a whole bunch of messages when I'm watching these things because I'm easily distracted as is typing messages. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it hurts. And in this case, I sent some messages in all caps and one of them at the very end was written by Harlan Ellison. I mm-hmm. loved it. I have no tomorrow and I must history. Yep. Yep. You must. Um, Harlan Ellison is, of course, for those who don't know him, because despite the name being everywhere and it being him having such a recognizable name in science fiction and being such like a sci-fi god, I haven't read many of his things. Um, he's really more of a, a personality, but he has he's a prodigi- prodigious writer and a just um <laughs> on wikipedia it says he's known for his outspoken combative personality <laughs> mm. that doesn't sound like any mm. other individual that we've met. actually let me rephrase that doesn't mm. sound like any of the other men that we've met during this entire thing nope um but he wrote over seventeen thousand short stories novellas screenplays comic book scripts teleplays and essays and a lot of criticism on just like literature, film, television, essays and stuff. He edited um, for big, uh, you know, uh, publishers yeah. of many books, anthologies. Anthology, haha, is the word I'm looking for, as well as science fiction magazines, etc. And he is arguably the the nicest feather in Gene Roddenberry's cap. Just in terms of, like, getting prestige? 
Yes. In terms of the prestige. Um, he, yeah, he was probably just because everyone knows him. He goes to he was always a science fiction fan. He like wrote zines as a child. Um, I mean, if you've written and, 17,000 things, I yeah. I think you've been writing and have never stopped at that point. Yep. Um, pretty much. But he, he was basically like the biggest feather in Gene's cap. And we have seen him already fuck up Gene's shit. By uh, doing things like calling the other sci-fi writers who were annoyed at rewrites, uh, like hacks suckling at the teat of Hollywood. Um, As you do. Inflammatory shit like that. Um, But Harlan Ellison, we'll we'll start off with a little bit sort of about it, how it got started. And then we'll get into the episode because this was written by Harlan Ellison, right? He's the only credited author. Yes. On this screenplay there are maybe like two lines in the screenplay that reflect that original work okay uh, in the finished episode there's about there's about two lines drama 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 was so angry that he wanted to have his final credit be the name cornwainer bird which is (laughs) cornwainer uh cord wainer cord? uh cord wainer okay mm-hmm. how do you spell there's that? another sci-fi uh c-o-r-d-w-a-i-n-e-r oh, so literally as it, a, is, it sounds okay mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's an old word for shoemaker oh, um and another sci-fi author cord waiter smith you know harlan mm-hmm. loves him Right. Yeah. So he's like, oh, I'll put cord waiter and then I'll put bird so that everyone can see that I'm giving the fucking bird to the people who rewrote me. Yeah. I mean, just so, call yourself Lord <laughs> Fuckington at that point. Like, what? Do you, oh, OK. Pretty much. Um, It was his way of signaling dissatisfaction uh, with the his with the production. And he had done that name for like Lost in Space. Oh, um, so, so this was this mm-hmm. was his thing. This was his thing. Um, And (laughs) he claims uh, that Roddenberry made veiled threats uh, that if he did so, he would be blacklisted. Like, Roddenberry was like, I will fucking blacklist you. Like, I already had to rewrite your goddamn script. Like, I already had to deal with you on my fucking set for five months, almost. Not five months, but a number of weeks. Gene was like, oh, 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 I'm sorry. You have forgotten. Star Trek is the good, the bad, and the gene. Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. Harland in that sentence. But no, I will no, no, put no. you in that bad if you want. If you mm-hmm. want Harland, you can be part of the bad. Oh, yeah. Um, I do want to say it, I did the math here. Yeah. So an 84-year-old individual, which is how long Harland lived, would have mm-hmm. lived 30,660 days. So at 17,000... Double that, and that's 34,000. That means he's writing at least every other day a new piece of work. And that's including his childhood. So there are points of his life where probably every single day, theoretically, he could have had something being written. Like, Oh, you would think. Yeah. Except you would think you would assume you have to assume. You have to assume. That's because this treatment was assigned. On the 16th of March, 1966, literally he was one of the first people hired to write anything. And he had this great idea 
um, he was reading um, a novel about or not a, a biography mm-hmm. of a a woman a lot like Edith Keeler, um, who was, you know, someone during the thirties who fought for social rights. And he's like, wouldn't it be crazy if Kirk fell in love with her and then she had to die. It's a great premise. And And he has great premises. So he, he came with that. He had his first outline done in four days. Normal. The 21st. Um, it then took him a month to revise that outline in, into something presumably shootable right i mean fair he's got other stuff he has to do we you know that there's sixteen thousand nine hundred and ninety nine other pieces that exist out there that he had to get done exactly um he it took him then another month to get to the first draft of the telepay technically writers are given two weeks like that is the deal with the writers guild at this time so he is Uh, six weeks and Four days out. Yes. Yes. So it took him at least three weeks and then another number of weeks. And then it got handed to five other people. Oh, all to at make once it or just shootable? Uh, oh, over time. Over time. It went then to Stephen Carabazzo's hands. Okay. Um, he was an early uh, story editor. Um, it then went back to Ellison. Okay. Then... It went to Gene Alcoon. Okay. And then it went to DC Fontana. And then it got cleaned up by Roddenberry. That's and that's the the whole works. That's every yeah. single person in like yeah. Star Trek dumb in that mm-hmm. time that you could get there. So everyone was having problems with mm-hmm. this. Or they just were like, they were like just not wanting to deal with it and just kept passing it off to other people and being like, I had other fucking shit to do. That's pretty much what happened. Um, DC Fontana didn't tell Harlan Ellison for that she was part of the rewrite for 20 years. Oh, my she was God. so afraid well, of him. Well, because I'm assuming he got that pissy at the he beginning was point. Wild. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there are a lot of great stories of him on set because basically like he wasn't getting his work done. And he wasn't doing the things they were asking him to do with the script, like things that would make it shootable. Of course. Um, And which we'll get to when we go to his like original story of it. Um, But he was also just a fuck around. He like he's like, I want to set. They're like, fine. He's like, I'm not like getting it done. I have this done. I have this to do. I'm feeling sick. I'm having the breakup of a marriage. I'm married. And then we're breaking up the marriage. They were married for seven days. Uh, Um. Okay, I was, do you know what was funny? In my mind, I was about to give him the tiniest iota of credit yeah. being like, break up, I mean, I've never been in, in a breakup bed, so, but that has to be hard. About about DC Fontana being afraid of fucking Harlan Ellison, he had a quote about it. He's like, it broke my heart. This is 20 years later. It broke my heart when I heard DC Fontana was part of the rewrite because I loved her. Um, She said she was afraid of me all these years and she was right to be. Uh, I mean, okay. There's a level of self-awareness there. Yeah. I wasn't expecting. Yeah. He was, he was hella on board with his insanity. Um, he wasn't doing his work. So they're like, we'll give you an office on set. So they put him in this little office and he's like, I need my record player so I can listen to jazz while I write. It's my process. <sighs> he would play it so loud that people couldn't hear other people on the other end of the phone. 
Is like, this the second time we've had someone be really loud? Or did you tell me this story This is already? him. This is him? Because okay. this was... This was during Mud's Women. Like oh, they were shooting this is the during first that. couple episodes. That's where we've okay. So this, mm-hmm. Captain Emily, this is like we're having yeah. time fluctuations, and I'm getting right? waves of information that are hitting me that we've already experienced before. It's like history is going past me in a, in a viewfinder of a stone, a weird fucking sentient stone. Yep. Yep. Uh, so they got him a little office on set. He's playing his shit so loud that people can't hear. One day, um, it's playing really loud, and John D.F. Black, who was the first story editor that they had hired, like, goes over to be like, hey, can you turn down your fucking records? Like, we're trying to work. Um, Like, we have to talk to other humans. Opens the door. Harlan Ellison's gone. (laughs) Yeah. They find him on set. Um, just fucking around with the actors. They're like, Harlan, get back to fucking work. He goes back in the office. A door closes. No one comes out of the office. And again, the stones are playing really loud. They go back over to open the door to be like, hey, dude, like, turn down your stones. He's gone again. He has climbed out the window. I was ready for it. As soon as you said, as soon as you set it up, I'm like, this dude's going out a window. There's no way he's sitting down to write. Yep. He was always fucking around. Um, He loved hanging out in Justman's office um, because Justman had a couch and a bathroom. So he would like wait for Justman to leave and then go fuck around in there with uh, John D.F. Black and his wife. And one time took took Justman's recorder and put it into the depths of the toilet and flushed it a bunch of times so that he would have like the recordings of a toilet flushing on his tapes. I'm very worried that Harlan Ellison and I have a lot more in common than I would like to admit, because this kind of fucking around is exactly the kind of stuff I do when I'm procrastinating and don't want to sit down and do things like explicitly write, because writing sucks. It fucking sucks. And that's basically like the, the people on staff of Star Trek were basically like, yeah, it sucks. Like, we get it. We get that writing is hard. Yeah. Every writer um, I know says writing sucks. They're basically, and- like, if they're people who love writing, they're they're the ones that are odd and weird and crazy. Because mm-hmm. it's a monotonous process to sit there and, like, have, have your fingers be slower than the thoughts in your head. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we get it. But. But. But we're paying you dipshit. But. We're paying you, you stupid dipshit. Um, before we get into the story and perhaps a few other uh, moments from Harlan Ellison's time on set um, or, or post on being on set is that he was very adamant to Justin. He liked to say, you could shoot this script for 79 cents. You could shoot it for 79 cents. This was the most expensive episode ever produced during oh the first season. Oh my god. I, but do you know why? I get it. There's so many sets. They're having to go around yes! in so many different places. Yes! Like, I, yes! Like, they just are going from scene to scene to scene. Yes, there's extras. There's like, uh, there's... Cars! Time period appropriate cars. Time period appropriate clothing there's match shots like there are there are the double exposures which is the new it's a brand new they're like doing like they are projecting like they are 
having Kirk and all them look at images on a screen. So they had to do the mm-hmm. post-production work to get that image on yeah. there. Yeah. Um, it, it, the average cost was about um, $190,000. This was $245,000. That's like, a thick budget. And some change. How much yeah. of that was to get Joan uh-huh. Collins? Oh my God fucking right and that's yeah that's the other thing the acting in this episode is absolutely fantastic um and it is really really well regarded um so let's get started let's Let's get get started with this crazy episode we open on the bridge of the enterprise and they are already on high alert they are you know, holding their orbit, but they're rocking around, you know, doing our standard Star Trek, like, oh no, we're being hit by turbulence. <laughs> um, they are going around a planet that is orbiting a dead sun, and they're like, okay, we need these scientific data from this planet, and then we can get the fuck out of here. Um, and it's pretty interesting because these turbulent features. It's actually ripples in time. Yeah. That the ship keeps hitting. Timey wine gobbledygook. Acting exactly the same way as normal turbulence. Um and they're like, whatever, we're gonna be done getting our data soon. But unfortunately, soon is not remotely soon enough because Sulu's navigation helm explodes in his face and he is rocketed uh unconscious to the floor. McCoy comes in to take care of Sulu, um, injects him with a thing called cortisine, and Sulu just kind of immediately wakes up, and he's all like, oh, I'm totally fine now. Um, Turbulence occurs again. Bones trips over, and oh no, accidentally hypos himself with an entire, like, you know, dose like overdose of the cortisine he's holding the needle toward himself he leans forward and it goes right into his gut right into his gut um he rockets up like he's on the most insane pcp he is screaming about killers and assassins and then he calls everyone murderers and assassins and runs off the bridge now missy you brought up that it seems a little silly Right for McCoy to be holding the hypo like towards himself yeah. and like tripping on it—that's kind of boneheaded, right? Boneheaded. That was written by DC Fontana. You know, she that that her invention was the cortisine. Um, Harlan Ellison. First off, before the second draft, after Stephen Carabazzo's got it, it was entirely different. But at this point, Harlan Ellison is like. <gasps> They had the doctor act in the most boneheaded way when I came up with a super, super reasonable way for him to get injected with drugs or get like some kind of chemical in him. Chemical in him. Um, he got a bite from an alien animal. I mean, sure. All we have to do is get a draw dog, dress it up again. (laughs) Have that somehow. Yeah, have that look great. And then have him be bitten by a wild alien animal that is somehow on the ship. Harlan, excuse me, what? It's that simple. It's just that simple. You all have like a monster biting costume on set, don't you? Right? Obvi. 
Obvi. Um, <laughs> space, the final frontier. <laughs> we see an extremely paranoid Dr. McCoy skulking around the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, he's freaking out. He's sweaty. His eyes are like five times their normal size. Like, yeah, whatever he got injected with, it's clearly some type of stimulant slash steroid because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. peaking like he is on an uh, assumably what a meth high looks like. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the issue is, is they don't know, like no one has ever been injected with this much cortisone before. So they don't know what is going on in his head. They know he's paranoid. They know he's having like a drug reaction, but they don't know when it's going to end. They don't know if it's going to stop. They don't know what he might be capable of on this drug. Like right now, it just seems he's trying to escape, you know? Um, So we see him. Which does raise the question, why did Bones have such a high amount yeah. Of that drug in the needle to begin with. If this is more than, if after, after he shot mm-hmm. Sulu, that's more than any human has ever taken. Yeah. Do doctors yeah. just regularly do that? Put a li- just a little bit extra in there just in case you go little. Boop, 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 and squeeze it in. You know, you, you never know when you're going to hit turbulence in your spaceship. Who? Yeah. And how much it's going to need to revive rebels. someone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Quick, I need to draw an indeterminate amount of liquid. <sighs> um, he is doing his very best to escape. We see him walk into the transportation deck. He takes out a guard. He has like great um fighting abilities. Um, and transport himself down to the planet. Um, and apparently it was directly into whatever the time you know uh discernment was occurring whatever this strange thing that's happening yeah there is he landed right in the yeah, middle they're basically like oh it just zeroes in on the center of whatever that is conveniently mm-hmm. conveniently um so of course what do we got to do put together a team that's right we need a team to go down to the planet mm-hmm. we got all the greats this time we got kirk we got spock we got uh we got scotty we got uhura yeah And thank fucking God, because can you imagine if we needed like a B team to solve uh, the issues in this episode if Kirk and Spock didn't do it? You know, we can't just have Ensign What's-Her-Face. I was really happy to see Ensign What's-Her-Face was back on the deck. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, So if we put together a team, we head down to the planet, which is... This awesome, creepy, blue, purple, kind of mystical, sparkly space. Yeah. And there's these, like, Greek-style columns, like, ruins mm-hmm. all around, um, extending to the horizon. It's all sparkly and blue. Um, it's And what's really fun is that originally it was written um, for there to be rune stones. Okay. Okay. Around, but... A certain Matt Jeffries, our usual art director, was sick. And so art director, Roland M. Brooks, like this is the dude who's like above Jeffries, but not as hands-on with like the script and with all of the stuff. Like, you know, just the way that that Roddenberry is the producer, but Gene Alcoon is doing the day-to-day stuff. Um, 
And apparently Brooks had had a martini the night he was reading that script. Oh, God. And didn't know what runestones were. So he went to his handy dictionary, got to ruins, and stopped. He just was like, do you know what? I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm super good. He also made The Guardian a Forever, which is kind of like a donate donut shaped uh a zone it's in the futurama uh futurama episode uh where no fan has gone before it's an i it's an iconic piece of star trek it's stuff it's star trek. the donut with the green screen inside um it was originally written in addition to being scattered with runestones it was supposed to be two pillars and then a big like shock of white light that just kind of went up and shimmered in all these like crazy patterns and stuff and justman was like what yeah like (laughs) he was like you want to blind all of our actors with what budget like tell me with what cash we are to do that's fine i'm really happy with the lumpy stargate that we got instead The half-buried circle that's within there and is just, like, flashing and talking to people. Yes. Um, Apparently, when Jeffries got on set, he was like, what the hell is this? Um, And it was uh, Jim Rugg, who was the special effects artist, who did the lighting effects. Okay. I was just going to mention that. that. It was actually some Mm -hmm. pretty nice post. It it looked okay. It was a great post. Um. So it's all sparkling blue. We got our like donut shaped archway. We don't see anything in the middle of it right now. And it is apparently where all of the things are occurring. Like that is the the middle of these effects. Um, And Kirk is like looking at it and he goes, well, then what is this? And the guardian speaks. Um, it's not James Dewan who does the voice. Oh. It's the guy who they thought did the vo- who is usually credited with the voice of uh of the f- the like godfather, the like godlike being who is the parent, I suppose, of um Oh, is it Trilane? Yeah, Trilane. Yes, yeah, yeah, thank yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. Trelane. So we have had in, a reappearance of both the voice of the male and the female, but who we saw in person in an episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this time it was uh Bartel LaRue. And it's actually him this time rather than Doin. Yeah. Um, but they do have Doin like put on that voice for other things. So um Kirk's like, what is it? And the guardian speaks and says, a question! And now we get the two lines of dialogue or perhaps the only only lines of original writing from Harlan Ellison's script. Lay it on me. Both drafts. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. That's it. It's a good fucking line. It's 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 a great line. line. If you're gonna keep any of the lines, Uh, good line to keep. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, there's a third line that he says at the end. Time. Yeah. So so I'll say that when it comes. So Kirk's like, "What the fuck are you?" And he says, "I am the guardian of forever. 
Is he a machine or a being? Both and neither. His own beginning, its own ending. Uh, Spock is like, I see no reason for answers to be couched in riddles. Because once again, he's answering the things the way that Lazarus did. He's like, devils! <laughs> it, Monsters! If Yeah, if that, the way he speaks in the dialogue was how he's, like, that entire script was written, I can get why it would yeah. need a lot of massaging. Because it's very wordy. <laughs> but... But, but this is a lot better. Uh, the Guardian just uses this as a moment to dunk on Spock. And he's just like, I'm answering as simply as your level of understanding can have, like, handle. This is all you're going to get, my dude. <laughs> because you cannot understand. <laughs> and they're like, sure. Spock takes a little offense that, to it. Spock does. He, there's a lot of great reaction spot, uh, shots in this episode mm-hmm. of Spock just looking, like, appalled. Um, and he's so Spock is like ah obviously it is a time portal a gateway to other times and dimensions if I'm correct and the guardian says as correct as possible for you (laughs) your scientific knowledge is obviously primitive and Spock goes really (laughs) he literally says really I love (laughs) sassy time gate Right? It's the (laughs) ultimate machine or being that can nag. Like, if you can get Spock Mm -hmm. off kilter, you're good. You're (laughs) you're good at what you do. Yeah, you're super good. Um, So throughout this exchange, we see McCoy, like, wandering paranoid around that little area um he's trying to avoid the search party um and he's he's spooked he's insane he's terrified eventually he jumps out of a rock screaming like out from behind a rock and spock nerve pinches him so mccoy is down for at least a moment and that's when they are like wait a minute we're standing in front of a time and dimensional space machine that is causing time ripple effects millions and millions of miles away across galaxies um excuse me cosmic entity sir can we go back like maybe yesterday and stop this whole mistake with this guy our buddy i wasn't can ready we just... for it i was not can ready we... for them to bring that up i was like oh wait what no oh my god are we doing time travel is, is this going to be back to the future too where we have to prevent mm-hmm. the events that are making sure either way like I, I i was like oh my god oh my god what are we happening with time right i yeah. didn't think this is where we were going i just love that they're like small beans like immediately can we go back to yesterday and stop our friend from accidentally injecting himself? Like, let's just fuck a little bit with time hey, and space. Hey, minor deity, can we just, like, <laughs> yeah. correct this little thing? Yeah, it's not, they don't have the let's go back and kill Hitler plan. No, they're just like, no. can we prevent Dr. McCoy from getting a meth overdose? Yeah, but at that moment, and and so the Guardian is like, Look, I can only show you a montage of time. Yes. <laughs> I can show I you. I a- cannot take you to a specific day. <laughs> I can show you a montage of clips from historical films that have been Literally. around, so that way we can afford the rights to be able to project these silent film images to you. So, oh, <laughs> about I knew that. there was going to be a story. I knew it. 
So they are lifted from old Paramount Pictures and RKO Picture Films. Okay. Based on copyright law as it currently stands. Okay. It was probably copyright infringement. Probably. As it stood then, they did pay for that footage. Oh, well, if they paid for it, because they Because they didn't at that time, like, own... They paid, like, somewhat... They, they got it because of their connection with Paramount yeah, and yeah, stuff, yeah. but they didn't actually own that film library at that time. Well, it probably was, like, so, now the residuals or whatever yeah. would be totally different and stuff. But, yeah, we can't judge... Exactly. We can't judge the people in the past. The past. Four copyright laws went on up there. But yes, when I saw all those images, yeah. it just made me giggle. Um, what Harlan Ellison was uh, suggesting for this moment in, in the script is for a woolly mammoth to burst forth from the the time like donut. Hey, like so, for them uh, to see a woolly mammoth running into trees and shit in the time portal and then run out of the time portal. And Robert Justman just in his memo was like, and then Robert Justman is rocketed backwards in time and dies because where the fuck are we supposed to get the money? Like, he's like, where am I supposed to buy stock footage? You guys are a student. Of like, don't you have a woolly a mammoth costume available? I don't understand what the <laughs> problem is. It's on the paper. It's it works. Just, it works. It costs 79 cents. It'll cost 79 yeah, cents to make. I could, fil- I could film this in my backyard. What, what are you doing? I could just do it. Um, John D.F. Black said, and this is like why he basically quit. He's like, I didn't know about production. He's like, I knew like nothing about production. Harlan Ellison knew half of what I know. (laughs) Like he knew so little. He divided by zero. That's how much little he knew. Yes. <laughs> he, divided, but he he removed himself because there's no limit and he's crawling out of a window because like, no, I shouldn't be able to do this equation. I can't be here. I can't be here. I need to start dating a 19 year old that I'm going to what? be married what? to for oh. a year. Ah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No. Yeah, no. He dated, he had five marriages. Um, only one of them is like weird age match in that way. He was like 34 or something and she was 19, but it only lasted like eight months or so. Yeah, I wonder why. Um, <sighs> yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. He was like, that was a dumb idea. And it's like, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it, Harlan. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh my God. Um. As they're watching this montage, Spock's like, oh, shit, I should have had my tricorder on this whole time. I'll be able to get like, every single moment of recorded history that we don't have. As It's like, he's like, I want to pirate history the movie. Yes! Yes! On my, on my shitty home camera recorder. Straight up. Um, And, but they're, none of them are paying attention to McCoy anymore. And he's on Cordesine. So he's not as out, out for as long as he normally would with a nerve pinch. Mm-hmm. He wakes up, he's freaked out, and he runs and leaps directly into the guardian of the past. Yes, and what has been established is, yes, you can go back in time through this, but this is like a tape recorder. It's live to tape. So you can jump through, but we're not really going to know exactly where you're Mm going to end up, and we don't have the precision, which is exactly a plot point from Futurama when they're going through time. Yep! They yep. did the thing! Yep! <laughs> At that very moment, 
they lose contact with the ship. Yeah. Oh my Nothing. god. This was this was great. The Enterprise is gone. They are entirely alone. They are stranded. Something that McCoy did in the past caused, as the Guardian puts it, for all that they know to be gone. You have no past. You have no future. Uh They are existing in a pocket, in a moment of time Mm -hmm. and space. That everything... I was like, here's some stakes for you. I Yes, I was totally in. In, in, in. Yeah. Flynn? It's fantastic. We get a great slow-mo of like, Kirk being like, oh shit, like we're alone. And he like looks up to the sky. It's awesome. Um, And they're like, all right, we have one chance. We have to jump through the archway at the same time, at the right time. Yay, kitty. Is that Dr. President? It is. Dr. President's so big. Scoot over so you can see the comparison oh. of the shoulder. Oh my god! He's no longer a shoulder cat. He's as long as the shoulder. Oh my god! Yeah, look at him. Look how big he gets. Look at that guy. Look at that guy. Cat size. Oh. Now, if he leaped through a time space portal, oh I would leap right after that doctor. He would absolutely go back and kill him. <laughs> yes. He will kill all the Hitlers. Um, so <laughs> their only chance is they have to jump through at the same time and stop whatever he did yeah. <laughs> to change history. They're like, hey, 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 can you rewind real quick or like to start from the yeah. beginning again? And then we're just going to time it. Because yeah. like, they're like, we're going to time it. They ask it if they can do it. He's like, oh, no, I I was operated to always move forward. I can't do that. But yeah. like, you, you know, when it comes back around again, sure. Yeah, straight up. He's like, I can only operate the way I operate. Um, there are no updates for me. What does that um, mean? I'm not going to be your deus ex machina. That's what it means. Yup. But thankfully, Spock turned on that tricorder. And so he is able to, they're able to, he's he's able to be like, oh, okay. I got the recording of what was happening in the portal just as McCoy jumped through. And I can probably get as accurate within a couple weeks. Like, there's no way we can know, like, exactly. But, like, if we land there, if we try to time it for just before he does. So we have, like, some time to hang out. And we can find him. We can catch him. Maybe we fix everything. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness Ray Bradbury hadn't written the butterfly effect yet. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because they're not too worried about little things that they're going to do in history. Um, But they're, like, sweet. Kirk and Spock, they're like, we're going to be the first ones to jump in. And if we fail, uh, when you think that you've waited long enough, Scotty, you're next. Each one of you is going to have to jump through and try to be at the right time and try it again. Like, good thing we brought the A-team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this This is a slight spoiler. We don't ever get to see them jump through. But oh no. my God, wouldn't it be amazing if there was an episode mm-hmm. written where each of them has to keep jumping through and we just see like the multiple attempts for people to come yeah. back and what they're doing behind the scenes right. to affect other people. But we can do that in a film called Back to the Future 2. Continue. Yup. Um. <laughs> so they leap through the Guardian and with a great 
match cut with a great double exposure. They pop out on the other side of the 40 acres lot. Uh, oh, of course. Where back, this Return is... of the Archons was shot, where Miri was shot, where the Andy Griffith show is shot, where Hogan's lots. Heroes is shot. Yeah. So, like, he popped through and I was like, that's Return of the Archons. And I was fucking right. And I was so proud of myself. And, like, should I be? It looks exactly the same. And, and you know, it's like... <laughs> How can I keep mentioning this? It's like the iconic backstage lot of Back mm-hmm. to the Future, where you see it in other films, yep. like explicitly Gremlins, and you're like, I know that because of the clock tower or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's easy to just see because like these street corners are all the same. These buildings, these square buildings, these facades all mm-hmm. look the same because it's the same yep. one. <laughs> um, and it is apparently the Great Depression. It's 1930. A and barbaric you time. Know, barbaric barbarism spock cannot get over cannot get over the barbarism of these fucking humans like two old ladies walk up and they just kind of like stare at mr spock and kirk they're dressed in their uniforms yeah like mr spock has no hat nothing to hide his ears they're kind of like looking off to the side like as if that's going to keep everyone from seeing them it's great he like kind of puts his hands over his ears and i love i love these two women they cast i gotta shout them out they look they are looking so (laughs) intently and they're just they are staring with no regard they are just looking at this being like what oh look at the little freak show we've wandered into and they don't know whether to run scared or just like go and poke at his ear it Mm -hmm. but these women are looking with the intensity of like hey fucked up guy what 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 should i uh react to you how should i react um they they start crossing the street and they almost get hit by a car once again, we had to get a 30s car in there. Yeah. We had to get someone operating the car. We had to get other people on the streets. And we had to have them doing things like stopping and looking at someone. When you hire extras, if they have a specific action to do, not even saying anything. If they are like, if we need someone to stop and look at a thing, like specifically, that person gets paid more. Yeah. Because they're doing more work. Because you have block Because they deserve to be paid more. And so they are Harlan. It does not cost 79 cents to hire old ladies to give you the stink eye, even though you get it constantly every day. Maybe if you bring your mother in here and have her work for free, I don't know what you're doing, Harlan. Harlan, what women can you get for a nickel? Harlan. His sister stopped talking to him in 1979 uh, at the funeral of uh, their parents. Like, like the parents died or, or the final parent died and they did not speak until both of them died in like 2018. Yeah. So he could not get a woman. Um, So (laughs) uh, they almost get hit by a car. And Spock just kind of like walks up to the car. He's like, fascinating. I want to look at this combustion engine. And it's like, Spock, dude, walk out of the street. <laughs> so they they get out of the way and they like see some clothes on a, on a fire escape. And Kirk's like, all right, you know what? I think I'm going to like this century. I think it's going to be really easy to manage. 
why don't we just steal from the rich and give to the poor later? Uh, which is a great line. Um, hey, hey, and it's hey, probably sorry, schmuck. I'm stealing your shit. Pretty much. Uh, it is probably a Gene Alcoon line because it's funny. Um, <laughs> GL comma um, wow I that. GL comedy yeah um so he goes and he grabs the clothes and he's kind of holding onto them turns around and there is a cop yep and perfect comedy Kirk says you're a police officer I recognize the traditional accoutrement and then Spock jumps in he's like that's all you got captain you don't have any better explanation you don't have a way out of this mister oh we should be fine in this in this mm-hmm. era of time and he's just standing there like ears out like he can't you know uh waiting for Kirk to say whatever the fuck he's going to say to the cop and when he says what he says next now dear listeners every once in a while i you know me Mm-mm-mm-mm. i love being dramatic People on oh, yeah. the queer spectrum love exaggerating because we're love storytellers. There is a, there's it. an idiom out there where we say, and then I screamed. We're not always screaming. That's not a literal physical thing sometimes we're doing. Emotionally, sometimes I'm screaming. Mentally, sometimes I'm screaming. Dear listener, when I heard Kirk's explanation in three simple words of why Spock looked the way that he is, he said, he is Chinese. I screamed to the entire house, Jesus Christ! Missy, when I tell you that the memory of hearing this line for the first time as a 12-year-old and screaming in my home, my friend is obviously chinese oh god and coming off of the klingon episode breeze let's just let's just breeze past that point but we had to call out that was a fucking moment like god damn we have casual i mean racism of it When, when also we have to point out i was excited earlier because we say Ensign what's their name. It is sort of like a little bit disrespectful because it's the Asian American woman who has been cast as uh, as a, a background character that was earlier on the bridge. Oh, so I was like, yeah. hey, excited, you know, good yeah. moving forward for Asian people. And then this line dropped yeah. and it's like, nah! yeah. yeah, this is a Gene L. Kuhn line. Uh, Dorothy <laughs> no. Fontana liked it. Uh, Harlan Ellison and I agree on this one thing for sure. It's god awful. It's not funny it's baffling like when i was that like i i'm in northern california i am in san francisco one of the most heavily populated like asian areas in america like to the point where like my grandparents like had friends that they had immigrated with who were all chinese like i i just thought that like i was so young when i heard this and it was so baffling to me that Someone could look at Leonard Nimoy and be like, obviously, that is a Chinese man and that explains his ears. And it gets worse. He says, um, it's easy to explain the ears. Um, He had an unfortunate accident as a child when he caught his head in a mechanical, this is racist, in a mechanical rice picker. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, no. But fortunately, 
there was an American missionary living close by who was a white savior. Hero, hooray! Hail the nice colonial people popping over, <sighs> and thank God, thank God, because no person who was Chinese could have figured out how to pull someone's ears out of a mm-hmm. rice bin. Like fucking hell. And it's one of those things where like they did not justify that statement no. at all. In that like it doesn't make sense that Kirk would know what he knows about that period of time. They, they but also know that like American missionaries were a thing. Like they could have he just doesn't said, know what a Chinese person yeah, looks they like. Just said like. All of that stuff basically like, oh he had an ear accident. Why why bring up the Chinese part? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of bizarre. It's a very uh it's real racist. It's, it's real wild. It's a its comedy time. beat. Yes, it is. And it's Yep. Yep. Do you want? I'm, I'm okay. And, moving on. Yeah. That's what we get. Wanna, we have dissected this this brief moment to the core. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just. Shocking. But it was shocking. I mean, but, it, it was. Yeah. I don't know what was more shocking of reveal that joke or Hitler. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So. Um, the policeman's like, "All right, all right. Like, I'm gonna arrest you." And Kirk and Spock do a really cute... I really love when Kirk and Spock do a team-up takedown of yeah. someone, um, which is also all Gene Alcoon. Um, and, but also, it was Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner oh. working out, like, bits together, the way that they worked out Spock slapping Kirk and him flying across the oh, table. Oh, yes, um, yes. Yeah. Like, they worked out a lot of stuff together, and I'm sure that this is part of it, but, like, one of... Like, Kirk's like, oh oh my gosh, how careless of your wife to let you go out that way. And like grabs at something on his collar and Spock's like, the policeman's like sort of caught off guard. He's like, what? Where? And Spock's like, oh, that's quite untidy. Let me help you. And nerve pinches him. It's good great. Move. I mean, pretty much a good move. Yeah. Uh, ring around your collar. Yeah. I just love it when they do that. If there's a multi-legged creature crawling on your shoulder, nerve pinch. Like every time Spock does that, fantastic. So they take out the cop. They grab their clothes and they run and they hide in the basement of the 21st Street Mission to change into their period appropriate ill-gotten clothing, including, thank God, a beanie for Mr. Spock. Okay, so maybe actually, to Kirk's credit, maybe he saw that he was around a mission and that's why the missionary part popped in. But yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that connection would momentarily happen. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I mean, it's not a good enough Kirk point like, to try and explain the point to you, though. No, but yeah. Um, Spock is like, God damn, like if only I had a computer, like a good computer, I could get the information from this tricorder and see what's going on. Like have evidence and clue of where McCoy is going to show up, what he could have changed. Kirk's like, couldn't you build a computer? And Spock's like in this zinc-plated vacuum tube culture. Oh, oh, I that line got me. I really love that. It. That it's was like, funny. Oh, the innovations that have made our world, mm-hmm. like our modern world as it is now, mm-hmm. even though we've advanced from vacuum tubes. It has made me laugh where he was just like, oh, I'm stuck with this old bullshit. Oh, bullshit. He calls it like stone knives and bearskins at a certain point. As if your computers don't take up entire rooms in your version of a perfect future anyways. 
fucking right. Um, but Kirk does a great move. And this is apparently like how George Lucas got shit out of his like teams. Like if George Lucas wanted something done and a person, the special effects was like, that can't be done. And George would just be like, huh, we'll think about it. You know, just think about Interesting. it. And usually the person would come up with a way to do it just because like their brain would start chewing yep. on it, you know? Yep. They'd be like, I mean, and solve so, the problem. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. The, the engineer part of their brain starts clicking. So Kirk's just like, oh, well, yeah, that, ah, you're right, Mr. Spock. That would pose a really complex question for you. It's such a problem in logic, Mr. Spock. Too complex for you. Excuse me. Sometimes I think I ask too much of you. And Spock's just like, like, (laughs) he is a Vulcan. But like, if that man was going to turn into a Hulk, it was right then. Yes. (laughs) He he did kind of get reversed Uno card. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, But the lights turn on and we see at the top of the stairs the beautiful Edith Keeler. That's right. And sorry, what was the name of the actress? Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Now, here's the thing. Joan Collins. As as a gay, I'm expected to know and love and cherish Joan Collins. She's a legend uh, just based on her personality, let alone her acting skills. She was the lead of Dynasty, one of the you know most mm-hmm. famous stars of the 80s. I have only known her as a personality. Like seeing her in interviews mm-hmm. or like little appearances where she's herself. Mm-hmm. I, this I think is the first time I've ever seen her act. And you know what? Mwah. Top tier. Perfect. Loved her. She was fabulous yeah. in this. She absolutely was. Um, and she she said that this was one of the things that most people knew her from. Like when she was wow. recognized, when she did her many appearances and stuff, most people knew her from this I episode. Get it. Um, Star Trek, Star Trek um, fans are, are intense. They know. And she's just like, who are you? What are you doing here? She has no fear also of like two dudes in the basement. So like awesome on her. Cause I would be a little bit like, Oh, like let me step back she up runs the stairs. A she has dealt with every yeah. type of person. Yes. Um, and they're like, Oh, sorry. We didn't know what was down here. And she's like, wow, that's an interesting way to start off a friendship with a lie. Yeah. What the fuck are you doing here? It was badass. God, God knows and, what you're what you've done. Mm-hmm. And that's when Kirk's like, I'm sorry. We were running from the police. Like you're right. We were, we came in here because you see, we stole these clothes because we don't have any money. And she's like, Look, I could use some help around here. You know what? Why don't you why don't I hire you to clean up this basement for me? And then when you're done, um, you know, you'll get 17 cents an hour, which is something that Spock made sure of. He's like, and what is the rate of pay? And like Kirk looks at him like he's being rude. And he's like, for my hobby. I need parts for my hobby. Radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, oh, uh, my hobby and such. And like they all look at him like no, no person who has no money and is facing, you know, homelessness, needing to steal clothes for themselves um, 
is like, damn, I really need money for my hobby. Okay, but to be fair. They're like, wow, I would love to be fed and housed. That is one of the most Spock things you can do because we have made yep. comparisons for Spock and the autism spectrum that has been yep. done in the past. And what is more <laughs> on the spectrum than yep. first thought being, but how am I going to sustain my hyper-specific mm-hmm. interest? Nope. <laughs> I mean, they have a goal. They have a goal. There's a reason. There is a mission. I'm not trying to, like, look but... it up in there. But it did make me laugh in that way of being like, yes, that's the first thing he would verbalize is the need to, to like, fulfill that goal. Like, boom. Everything is in But she's lens. like, all right. <laughs> she's like, okay, like, clean up this basement, come upstairs, have some food, and and I will pay you for, like, the amount of time you work. So later, Spock and Kirk are like, you know, getting some food. They like sit at some tables and there's this other homeless guy and he's like, oh, yeah, it's real nice. They give us this food. But now we have to like listen to this bitch talk, you know, like <laughs> nothing's free. Um, it, it is odd. Cause, sorry, it is odd just to go back to a time where like being a transient person was like viable because I was just thinking about the fact yeah. that it's like she's not writing down their taxes or their forms or getting a no. W-2 from them. Like she can just be no. like, oh, you just want to pop on him here for like a few days? Sure, here's I'll just yeah. give you some money and then you can fuck off and go wherever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's totally, totally within our system here, which I honestly feel like we should go back to. Like people should, I mean, I know people can pay it on the table, yeah. but it's just sort of like, come on. Right. Um, and so, but Edith has come out and she's like, all right, I'm going to talk to you all. And Kirk is like, you know what, dude next to me, shut the fuck up and listen to this lady. Yeah. Uh, and she has a lovely little speech here that Harlan credits to Roddenberry because he hates it. Um, and he's like, this is full of like the same utopian nonsense that Roddenberry likes. Harlan maintains that in his original script, he had Edith Keeler as much more of like an L. Ron Hubbard sort of person. Oh, and okay. I don't know what he means by so, that because this, this it's L. Ron Hubbard in mind. the 60s. This too. is fucking my mind because I literally like, Googled Harlan Ellison and L. Ron Hubbard because I feel like yeah. when I was listening to the Dead Authors podcast, with uh, mm. Andy Daly and Paul Tompkins. It's a great podcast. Um, and Andy Daly played Elvin Hubbard. I swear that Ellison came up a couple times. And maybe, like, I thought they mm-hmm. had a connection. I couldn't find anything from a basic Google they search. might have. But, it, but it, I just, that, like, again, like Hitler popping up in random things. It feels like Elvin yeah. Hubbard has his grubby fingers everywhere. Yeah. And, like, I'm not, I think that what Harlan means by that is, like, some sort of, like, sci-fi prophetess yeah some someone like, who speaks of like future visions and like yeah is in like an ethereal futuristic like mindset mm-hmm. yeah 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 because she's basically first she starts off with these great lines now let's start off by getting one three one thing straight i'm not a do-gooder if you're a bum if you can't break off the booze or whatever it is that makes you a bad risk then get out no bums allowed I wouldn't be able to handle it with no bums. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then she's like, look, I can't pretend to tell you how to find happiness and love when everything is a struggle to survive. But one day we're going to go to the moon and we will maybe even harness the incredible energies of the atom yep. and we can go in spaceships. And once we do that, um, 
will find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and cure all of their diseases and there will be new hope and a common future and our deserts will bloom. And there's um, the L. Ron Hubbard right there. That's where mm-hmm, we get into mm-hmm. it. <laughs> And it's 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 interesting. And it's very like Harlan definitely uh, criticized the speech. And I get that because it's like, we're going to go to space and that will fix everything. What? Well, and it's also just sort of like, uh, here's the thing. is It's pres- a general like half hope. Yeah, and it's, it's this like presented as this oddity. But science fiction had existed for like a few decades at this point. I mean, technically, if we're yeah. going in by the actual date, science fiction was invented by a woman. It was Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. Yo. It was not H.G. Wells, you fucking He people. lives! And so for like a century, this has existed. Yeah. So it wouldn't be that weird that someone would be thinking about mm-hmm. space and the ability for us to travel there at some point. Exactly. Um, but like how that relates to these dudes needing a job who knows yeah who knows but whatever it's a nice speech i like space kirk is entirely impressed kirk is like total hard eyes oh, over this yeah. he's like he's like oh my god she can imagine the future and the future she's right about that future she's just brilliant um and there was even a a quote that was in there in one of the earlier versions um that I don't think was Harlan Ellison, but where Spock's like, oh, she's quoting like Bonner so-and-so. And Kirk is like, but that person won't be born for another three centuries, you know? Like, wow, she's such a visionary. I like how Kirk is uh, on board for her. <laughs> if she was a Scientology yeah. founder, he'd be joining the movement right right away. Yo! Um, sometime later, we see all of these electronic steampunky sort of things, these vacuum tubes that Spock is putting together um, in the quote unquote flop that Edith Keeler helped them find. Like she, like after, after they finished cleaning up, she's like, oh my God, you guys did a really good job. Do you have a place to stay? And they're like, no, um, but we would like one. And she's like, look, there's a building open or there's a room mm-hmm. open in my building. I will talk to the manager. Like, I will get you guys a place to stay. Like, she's going above and beyond Edith's mother. for these guys. Edith is she is mother. And she's really, like, giving them, you know, as much help as she can. Um, Kirk walks in with, like, some groceries. Mm-hmm. And Splock's like, oh, um, you know, could you pick up a bar of platinum for me? I just need a small bar. Of platinum. It should be easy enough to find down at the grocer or the chemist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do love how quickly Kirk... they have they have adapted to domesticity, this little couple. Yeah. It is really cute. Um, and Kirk's like, wow, it is the Great Depression. And I spent all of the money that I made doing off jobs, which is apparently what I do now, Um Towards the things you have right now in this food to keep us alive. Honey, I have my job. So you can buy your vacuum stuff. And I've already given you all my money already. I can't give you any more than what I am already doing. And you know this. We're not having this conversation again. Slams door. Pretty much. (laughs) Spock is just like, how am I supposed to work with these 
stone knives and fucking bear skins. Like you expect me to work in this technology. And Kirk's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's such a hard problem for you, Spock, because you're not clever enough. You know. <laughs> oh, did someone have to figure something out? No, no, no. And that's when Edith Keeler pops in. She just pops her head in uh, Kramer style. And she's like, hey, <laughs> it's so great, yeah. If you can drop everything right now, I can get you a job that's like 22 cents an hour. Yeah, she's like, I got you an opportunity you can't refuse. Get the fuck over here right now. Yeah. And Kirk, which is so sweet of her. Like, that she's just like thinking of these people. Like, she's always has her ears to the ground for things that she can help direct people to. That is actually true. Um, Yeah, because she could, they mm -hmm. don't, they didn't ask her at any point. I mean, the problem was only now introduced of, hey, we need more money. And then she comes in being like, solved. Yeah. yeah, just like, hey, like I found, like, so it it gives the impression. And I think the impression is that like, they just keep going back to that mission and she just keeps giving them yeah. jobs or or hooking them up with jobs other places. Yeah. For whatever um, amount of time it takes until Bones gets there. Like they, literally, they're just, yeah. they are living a Sims autopilot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, she looks at all the crazy electronics that Spock is building. Oh, and it was um, what's his name? The the special effects guy who did the lighting for the Guardian. Okay, um, is the same person who did all of the cool steampunk things to show this like primitive computer nice. that Spock is it building. Was really and neat. I really liked that. Prop. I, I liked how the bulbs um, were exposed, and there was like, a, like mm-hmm. almost like an antenna going like from both sides. Yeah, it was really neat looking. Mm. Jim Rugg, Jim uh, R U G G, and he also did a lot of the design on the tricorder. Oh, very cool. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the tricorder was nifty. Yeah, it's super nifty. Um, so she's, you know, she's like, what the fuck is all this? And he's like, I am endeavoring, ma'am, to construct a mnemonic memory circuit using stone knives and bear skins, which is fucking hilarious. <laughs> she's like, do. okay, I guess, I guess the guy I have a crush on's boyfriend is a little <laughs> bit of a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Keep that in mind. Cause there's a, yeah. there's, there's a moment where she has later. Oh on, God. You can't get into it now. You, you know the moment, you know the moment. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> she is at a job with Kirk. He's sweeping up. Um, Spock is, is also sweeping up and they notice really fancy tools. Someone is like doing like clockwork. Um, And they decide to steal them. Spock is like, oh shit, like I need those tools. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see like a great like combination lock and he's like opening it and like Edith pops in and she's like, and apparently some time has passed. It's a weird edit. Um, And she's like, that toolbox was locked with a combination lock and you opened it like a pro and you stole those tools and Spock's just says like I need them for my radio work and I will return them in the morning like I promise they would have been returned in the morning and she's like I'm sorry like I can't but Kirk butts in and goes if Mr. Spock says that he needs a tool and that it will be returned tomorrow morning you can bet your reputation on that Mrs. Keeler so Kirk has just like jumped in and been like you can let Mr. Spock steal stuff like he'll put it back and Edith is like you know what on one condition, walk me home. On one condition, let's fuck. 
Like she's let's hold hands, clearly, which is like, which is mm. th- basically third base on NBC standards nope. and practices. Oh, you'll hear about them later. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, and she's like, "Look, walk me home. I have some questions about you too." <laughs> she uh, has I don't think some you questions about you too. Wink, wink. Pretty much. And this is like something random. Spock's like, where do you estimate we belong? And she's like, you, Spock, at his side, as if you've always been there and always will. Uh, she called him gay. Literally. She called like, him Spock, gay. you're gay for Kirk. Like, yeah, this is you're super gay for him. Okay. As a queer person who has watched yeah. enough queer TV, writing, cinema, mm-hmm. this is truly, mm-hmm. we're not making a joke of like community yeah. exaggeration. No. I emotionally felt like sh- this is like a coming yeah. out scene. This is her trying to say in it code, is. like, it's okay to be you. You belong with him forever. And I was like, holy shit, what is happening? Yeah. Um, what she says about Kirk is like, you, you belong in another place and I'll figure it out eventually. Yeah. She's just like, you're just not from and this Spock era. Says, I don't know what it is about you, but you yeah. cannot possibly be from here. <laughs> it's like, okay, woman. But he is gay for you. Um, Spock's like, I'll finish with the furnace. And then Edith's like, captain, even when he, Spock doesn't say it, he does. And that also weirded me out as a kid because I was like, wait, she knows like, one can one can see one can get information watching two people interact like they're yeah. in love or this person is entirely devoted to this mm-hmm. other person but she extrapolated that out in the 30s to it being a captain first mate kind of situation and i was like the military wasn't like a big deal then and so that didn't make sense to me but it's fine cuz they're gay uh this so I'm now so just... in fascinating in terms of the charisma and reading of people and I I use the yes. term aura but I'm not trying to say that in a metaphysical way I just mean the way that yeah. you can tell like how someone's energy and vibe is and like I have a big yeah. I have big vibes um and I can read people's vibes very well it's actually like that's talking about my therapist and stuff because it's yeah. one of the things I deal with in life I I read people's like micro uh, movements yeah. and things I'm very good at reading those smaller things that people aren't used to. So when she was talking about this and also comparing it to L. Ron Hubbard, who is a master manipulator and had to have been very good at reading people on a level to keep them convinced and going and to keep these people in his orbit where I can seem really eccentric and going on there, but yet also have the height and mind to set up an entire scheme of illegal things and get people to believe in this with them. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. so now that you've poisoned my head telling me this is like Ah! L. Ron Hubbard, because I'm reevaluating, it's like I went through another time warp and I'm reevaluating this episode with things that I didn't know and details that are now here and it's like yes it's all true yeah so so yeah we have our coming out scene and now we get Kirk and Edith falling in love we get a like lovely little montage of them just walking through the streets there's like a song called Goodnight Sweetheart is playing um, which is a really was a really popular song I saw later on had rights issues (laughs) maybe has rights issues Uh, yeah I didn't mention Um, this earlier but it also I should have said 
This is the longest Wikipedia I have ever seen for any of these episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The section alone on the writing of this teleplay is like insane. I didn't, I haven't read any of it because I love hearing it from Emily first. But to scroll down and get some details, I was like, holy shit, how far down am I going in here? This is maybe the most like so far like written about detail, uh, accounted for thing in history, which is so funny because it's about fucking history. Yep. And Missy, Missy. Like a spoiler, that's because fucking Harlan Ellison wrote a book about this episode, the writing of this episode, and the production of it, and the history of it in 1993. My God, okay. He died mad about this. He died mad about it. Man, you hold a grudge, dude. Oh my God. So, um,. We get we get good night sweetheart playing, which is great because it came out apparently, ha ha ha, in nineteen thirty one. Ah, my anachronistic things. Anachronistic. <laughs> so, meanwhile, back at the apartment, Spock has got his computer system to work. Oh, and here's here's my note about Jimmy Rugg who cobbled it together um it's a bunch of antique vacuum tubes like actual 30s vacuum tubes and they added some blinking lights and they blow up in just a second he also made them blow up which i think was probably the best thing on set (gasps) so unfortunately like spock has got his computer system to work and it pulls up a newspaper article with a picture of edith keeler and the headline social worker killed yes and like underneath it's like in traffic accidents i have to insert just real quick um, i'm gonna insert something i have to up. i'm gonna give a speaking of vacuum tubes i gotta call it mm-hmm. out it's alice's favorite part of sports night Ooh. cliff gardner Ooh. he's the one who Ooh. made the tubes the tubes i love it he made those tubes Literally, but to the, the story, so I'm going to quickly explain this because I I don't know if you remember the episode or not. Please. I just love, and for people who don't listen to the Not A Hate Watch, yeah. on the Sports Night episode, Which we you talked should. about vacuum tubes and the fact that they were created by this guy, Cliff Gardner, um, who I can't remember his relationship with Farnsworth, the guy who invented television or like, you know, concurrently invented him, but he developed oh, yeah, vacuum yeah. tubes just so that he could have them. And the character. Are you telling me that the person who actually invented television is Farnsworth? I'm not telling you that. I'm no. I'm saying because it was concurrent. There was a there, and I know because I just watched the Doctor Who special episode about the first podcast. Right. So I, but it it was right. That's literally. Did you not? Oh, have you not heard? This is a long-standing like America versus Scottish like history centering because popularly. Uh, what I would say is a factoid and the proper use of factoid, mm-hmm. because a factoid means a commonly held belief that is a fact that is not one. It is not the same thing mm. as a fact. Farnsworth invented TV. Now he did invent a system for television, but over in Scotland at the same time, John mm-hmm. Bard was working on his version of it. But Cliff mm-hmm. Gardner in, in, in the fight, I can't handle this. And Farnsworth is night. the one who developed his tubes on there. And it is just a part okay. that Alice was obsessed with in Sports Night. So this, I can't I have to carry it. that over. Okay. Recentering. Recentering. We are we are back um, in time. It just it brings in it brings in Futurama though again with Farnsworth. Yeah. Like it's all connected, Missy. Connected. It's all in the tube. Um so 
Spock has just seen this like newspaper article being like Edith Keeler's fucking mm-hmm. dead. She died. She was killed in an accident. Just then the whole machine like overloads and sparks and it's really cool. And Kirk walks in leaving Spock to have to tell him instead of just show him that unfortunately he thinks that the important moment in time that they have been circling around Mm -hmm. that changed is the death of Edith Keeler. And he brings up the time stream again, this time with like possibly like the changed uh, timeline and the newspaper has instead a photo of Edith Keeler saying that she's meeting with the president of the United States. Like she either dies in an accident or becomes so important that she is chatting with the president of the United States. I I was like, wow, we're doing it. We are doing the, can you save someone in the past and will it alter the Mm -hmm. future? I was getting hyped. I'm circling around again. I'm so sorry. I'm circling around again. Oh no, it's fine. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Cliff Gardner. I mentioned as a joke, we brought up Dr. Who timey wimey bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. He, and his wife, who is uh-huh. Philo Farnsworth, brother. Philo Farnsworth. So Cliff Gardner was name. the brother-in-law of Philo Farnsworth. And with mm-hmm. his, his sister, Philo's wife, they were the first two people that were transmitted on his sister. <gasps> they are the dummy from Doctor Who, if they had been an alternate universe, mm-hmm. they would be the two that are haunting every single <gasps> one of our signals throughout time oh and space. God. We were one yeah. story away from Cliff Gardner haunting us. Cliff Gardner. Cliff. <laughs> he made the tubes and he will live in them forever. <laughs> so so we have we have an issue. We have an issue. We don't know which of these versions of reality is the correct one at this yeah. moment. And, you know, we're concerned. So now that we have this dramatic upping of the stakes, we don't know if she's supposed to live or supposed to die. And Kirk is clearly in love I mean, with her. But to be fair, though, I mean, we do know because the the thing showed us she's dead. Because Well, we know now. We know now. But, but, yeah, I'm, but, but Kirk and Spock aren't sure if perhaps. I mean, they're playing with it. But yeah, you're yeah. right. I guess they it is couch a it as irony, if, but they should but, know. They should really know, like, this yeah. is literally recorded history. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's when we cut. We see a random homeless guy whose name in the script is Rodent. They never say it. But oh in the God. book I was reading, they talk about how he's named Rodent. Um <laughs> He's in a couple other episodes, too, as sort of a background person. We see him wait and steal a bottle of milk that has been left out. And that's when McCoy bursts out of the... Literally. Literally, that is what it sounds like. Missy, you did a perfect impression. And blotches. He looks bad. Red spots. He looks bad. Really bad. He's sweating. He's freaking out. He's like, what planet is this? He, like, grabbed a guy. And the guy is like, um, excuse me? And he drops the milk. It shatters everywhere. The guy runs away. McCoy catches up to him and he's like, oh, thank God we're both safe. Like, never. Thank goodness they didn't get us. But where are we? Like, who did this? Assassins! You know? Never has a houseless person being interacted with someone time traveling 
has it's never been done this good never. except for in Back to the Future where the yes! person there was on it. Another fucking connection. Yes. Straight up. Um so McCoy sort of passes out like from his like insanity um and rodent sort of like goes through his pockets and takes out a phaser. Oh my god. And he kind yeah. of steps away. It doesn't he doesn't really know what no. it is, and he like looks at it yeah. and presses the button and phases I, himself out I of existence. It. it took me a second to realize it was a phaser. Yeah. I thought it was a transporter, but then I was me like, too. "But he can't transport anywhere." And then, nope. It literally was like a couple scenes later. I had the realization, yeah. "Oh fuck!" <laughs> I was just like, yeah. "I think I think he iced himself." He iced himself entirely. But that's okay um, because he was a rodent. So who cares? He's a Apparently, that um, didn't change the timeline. Him, him being va- voiped. Sorry, apparently person. not. This was your destiny. But McCoy is here. He thinks he is being tricked that he's not actually on Earth and that they've created like a museum. And he's like, "Ooh, I would really love to see a hospital." Like that's yes. his own special interest. Like butting into the paranoia, being like hugging, but hospitals. a granite, a giant granite support beam underneath yeah. it. Again, I'm not trying to. I'm not this. I'm, I'm using stereotypes because thank thank God I've never actually had to hang around a person who's high on meth, but. I just imagine this yeah. like running around and hugging concrete barriers mm-hmm. is exactly the kind of activity that someone who is just manic with too much energy would be doing. Yeah. <sighs> exactly, exactly. Like honestly, like look, living in 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 the place that I do, the Bay Area, there is a problem and has been, I mean there's an extreme problem with oh, houselessness, yes. but there is also an extreme problem of uh bad drugs running through communities um and now most of the house people are not like on drugs but it used to be the case where it was like oh if you are a person who like people who are unhoused like aren't able to take care of themselves um because they're in these states of mania i've never seen anyone act like this oh you know we have houseless people and i live in a capital city so obviously we have houseless people yeah we have and that's something like cool that we see with edith keeler but also it's like to so to say that like mccoy is behaving in such a way that like he is in obvious and imminent oh yeah no this person is like i haven't seen someone yeah i haven't seen someone this manic just in the streets without like other people like without intervention or other people trying to 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 like calm down whatever's happening but the next thing we see a confused, disoriented, and still like splotchy looking McCoy uh, wander into the 21st Street mission where Edith Keeler is handing out coffee and she sees him and she's just like, holy crap, like you are so ill. She takes like, him in. You oh, are shit. way beyond like, it, like this is as if um, he looks like he was he's like actually like really ill that he needs a hospital. Like no one mm-hmm. would see him and be like, Oh, he can just have coffee and sit. Yeah, like no. literally she, she sees a, in her, in yes. her perception, someone who's like a drug addict or a sick person and yep. takes them it. Like immediately. She's like, I have a cot in the back room. No, no one will get that. you. I promise. Cause he's yep. still like, Oh no, like they're going to get me. Like, 
oh, assassins. And she's like, it's cool. Like, you'll be safe back there. I get why Kirk would fall for this person. Like, what Absolutely. a personality to fall into. As as we learn. Right? A very, you know, someone who, who in a different multiverse could have been influential. A multiverse we don't want to end up in. But here we go. Yeah. Um, But as she walks him into the room with the cot, Mr. Spock walks into the mission and just starts handing out coffee. Like, yeah. he, they completely miss each other. They're in the same room. It's just a comedy of errors. But, again, but it's because great. he's just so much into this. He's living the life of the yeah. mission. He's helping out. He's yep. into it. Yes, he Be is. Be observant um, where you are. Precisely. Um, so back in the apartment, Spock is able to show definitively like what happened after whatever happened that changed the world there was a growing pacifist movement in america led in part by edith yeah. keeler which delayed the u.s's entry into world Uh-oh. war ii which caused hitler what? this is the first time nazis are mentioned yeah. in star trek by the way causing hitler and germany to win Uh-oh. the war because they developed the a-bomb uh-huh. first no and that's kind of wild oh my god like emily do you know what this means yeah it they mm -hmm. this is a universe that didn't have barbieheimer the worst (gasps) universe in existence oh no i can't imagine it it. and again this moment here was when i was like i'm getting dial of destiny holy shit i'm having uh, this is like we're doing it again it's 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 can we get the like the 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 threat of the Nazis rising to power is 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 a yep. plot point within this. Like, what the fuck? And it's wild to me that they, or it's not wild, but I think that it's interesting that they don't, and this is just part of other episodes we've seen that are like a little bit jingoistic. They're a little bit like neoliberal America. Yay. Yeah. Because I would be a lot like more conflicted like were i writing this episode i would put in lines or question or discussion about like isn't it weird that in order to bring the peace we had to make the worst possible weapons first and that's ultimately what we're saying here like oh they developed the a-bomb first we developed the a-bomb first like history is what it is but like that's just an interesting complexity to sort of and also there's there's something else too that we have to keep in mind this was, and this is part of why I think it's more wilder for me than it is now, because we have distance from from the events yes. of stuff where I feel comfortable bringing up the name Hitler and then in the same time yeah. frame making jokes and references and laughing. You know, this mm-hmm. was just barely 20 years. years. Yeah. Barely yeah, yeah. 20 years after right. the end of the war. This is This aired in 67. So yeah. this is like the only comparison I can make. And I may edit this out when, when I go back and read this. <laughs> It'd be like if they said, oh, you can't rescue this person because then we're going to have like 10 9-11s. And that's what's going to yeah. happen. And then like, oh, no. And then Islam is going to take over the world because of this. It's like yeah. that sort of like reimagining mm-hmm. threat. That's the only thing that we have that we could compare it to for a yeah. modern era. And I, that's just in my mind where it's like, wow, they really felt like fine dropping that in so close to it. Yeah. 
And it's interesting. And it makes me think of like how we think of America now versus then. Because if I were to say like, okay, like the concern is that uh, Osama bin Laden and the terrorists would do like 109-11s and take over. So we need to make sure that we invade Iraq and cause the devastation that we've caused to that nation because that somehow will heat like it it's like saying that like we we know the history of america getting into world war ii and it literally wasn't boring and i'm not trying to like be dismissive about that yeah like they are using what i think is truth it's a terrible hard truth it's not like yeah but like again using those elements within fiction and the way that we yeah. use that, we detail our yes. traumatic histories. We detail the scars yeah. of our past and are fascinated about, could we change it? Could we heal it? And if we do, yeah. what's going to happen? Butterfly effect. Again, we have we have a term for it now, yeah. but like that's what they were dealing with here. So wild. And that's something that I think might have been in the original Harlan Ellison script, where it's that, where it's that question of like... Um, the sacrifice that Kirk is having to make is to allow the violence to happen to this, the most good woman, the most good and great person. There's also the sacrifice of allowing, you know, violence to occur versus just stopping it outright. And when is that violence something we should allow to happen? Um which is, you know, posed to us in these very sort of myopic, like, oh, like the Nazis versus us and, you know, the best, most godly woman, like accidentally dying when it's like, it's really complex. And I do think that modern Star Trek looks at yeah. that, but uh, yeah. As I was thinking about this and you were talking about this, I did not mm-hmm. realize how much of a Christ figure she kind of is. Like yes. dying for the sins um, to be able, but but, yeah. but get it, like, oh, I'm dying to help cure the sins of it. But it is just sort of like, hey, yeah. hey, you know that. <laughs> it just, it like, just we can't find like, another way. The fact that they made they always... the, the, a pacifist movement the enemy, like that's the bad yeah. thing. Oh no, oh no, we're too peaceful. Like that's not yeah. what we need at this moment. Which I again, I know, I get. It's close to that time. It's it was had to happen, but it mm-hmm. was just weird to make that like the bad thing like oh oh those fucking yeah. pacifists almost ruining everything like okay yeah talk maybe more about the isolationists who were se- who were selfish because of the capitalists who didn't want to lose all this money and investment and production and workers which was the real reason that isolationism exists it wasn't pacifists because they didn't have fucking power sorry Ooh. i'm done <laughs> um, you're entirely correct it just was a weird no, element you're... to bring up. <laughs> you are entirely correct. I think that something I think the why this sticks out to me so much is that in so many other episodes they really feature Kirk finding a third way. Yeah, and there's not. And there isn't in this one. Like one would want like, you know, in in the dream version of this, he would be able to save Edith Keeler, mm-hmm. promote pacifism and stop Germany from yeah. getting the A bomb. But it's interesting that this isn't an option for him in this script when we've seen it in others where he's like, nope, third yeah. option. This this is presenting a strict back to the future mm-hmm. style time travel where you cannot yep. interfere with the events of what's happening. Otherwise, you know, you're, instead of your children disappearing, it's, it's uh, you know, your, your enterprise disappearing. Yep. Yep. So 
siblings uh, Spock's like, yeah, like it's, I'm gonna re-record that. Yeah. Instead of yeah. your siblings disappearing on your little Polaroid, it's your enterprise disappearing from deep space above yep. you. <laughs> exactly. Um so Spock is like, yeah, you know, like Edith was correct. Like she was right about her vision of yeah. the future, and she's right about pacifism. Pacifism is the correct answer, but at the wrong yeah, like time. literally in within the Star Trek universe, that's true. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. She was right, but at the wrong time. Somehow McCoy keeps her from dying in the street accident. And that causes this whole future. So we need to stop McCoy from saving Edith Keeler. And Kirk's like, I have fallen in love with Edith Keeler. Yeah, he says it out loud. That is that's that's yeah. pretty much verbatim what he mm-hmm. says. I am in love with yeah. her. And I'm like, oh wow, we're not subtexting. This is now textual. <laughs> yeah. And Spock puts it succinctly. He says, Edith Keeler, he says, Jim, Edith Keeler must die. And it's a moment where he calls Kirk Jim, which is always yeah. very sweet. Um, but he's like, yeah, to get back what we have, she must die. We cut to Edith. We see her caring for Dr. McCoy in a cot in the back room. And he seems totally calmed down now. He does not seem paranoid mm-hmm. anymore. He's confused. He doesn't know where the fuck he is or how he got there. But but, but he's, he's no, he's leveled out. Know. Whatever she did, mm-hmm. she performed a miracle and, and healed him and leveled him out. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up. He's like, uh, I think I'm probably uh, still mad. Um, but I do like it seems like I'm on Earth. It seems like it's like the 20s. And she's like, oh, you're close. It's the 30s. Um, And he's like, I think I'm on Earth. I think it's like the 30s. And she's like, you know what's wild? I have a friend who talks a lot like you. And McCoy's like, wow, that person's probably also deranged. Because <laughs> like, I'm yep. pretty sure I'm deranged right now. Uh- <laughs> he's just like, oh, I've entered the simulation. Sh- Sorry. Yeah. He's like, look, I'm Leonard McCoy of the USS Enterprise. Like, I know that I'm in a situation where this isn't going to make sense to anyone. And she's like, that doesn't look like a Navy uniform. And he's like, it's okay, my dear. I don't believe in you either. <laughs> like, yeah. he thinks it's a it's whole just, hallucination. It's a great line. It's a great line. They shoot another or they shot another scene between the two of them wherein oh. uh it shows like McCoy sort of developing real feelings for Edith oh, Keeler oh beyond oh just God. the sort of paternal kindness yeah. so uh that I I perceived a lot of paternal kindness but he just seems really old to me yeah. also cuz I watched it when I was I mean, very young even um, me now he he seems old but even yeah. he was oh my god he probably was only Pretty like old. 20 years older than me I don't, I don't want to think about it well, not even that, because then he um, lived to be... I don't know. My brain... I can't do the math. I don't know. We can't... We have gone on so many tangents. I can't go on the tangent of how old was Leonard McCoy. We can't do it. I'll figure that out. Um, so, yeah. So, they were they were originally going to put that scene in. It was shot, but it was never used. Um, back at the apartment building, Kirk sees Edith, you know, go up the stairs. They're chatting. And she trips and falls, and he catches her. Just sort of automatically. Yeah. Spock watches this and like when Kirk gets down, he's like, um, dude, that could have been how she dies. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you could have just fucked up 
history. And Kirk's like, no, 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 it's not time yet. McCoy's not here yet. And Spock's like, dude, we don't know things with that level of specificity. We can't interact with like, her. We need to stop. Like, I am working with bearskins and sharp stones. Like, you, like, work with me here. So Edith goes to visit McCoy again, and he's feeling a lot better. He's standing up. He's drinking coffee. Um, and she's like, do you want to see the paper? And he's like, no, no, no. I've decided that all I'm seeing is a Corazine hallucination. But you know what I have decided? Uh, that you're real. And it's so charming. Yeah, it is. It's so charming. He's like, you saved my life. And I really like want you to know how much I appreciate that. And she's like, look, like lots of people drink from the wrong bottle. Like assuming she's assuming that like he accidentally took a drug maybe he was like in despair and took too much of something like she's like this ain't which is so kind of her especially because yeah and it's wild because like earlier she's like if you're a bum get out but we see like she's she's kind um and she understands that like shit happens to people um and she's like oh well you know i'm about to go out to see a clark gable movie my young man and we all know it's kirk and he's like who the fuck is clark gable and she's like that's so weird that you don't know who clark gable yeah, is she like mentally stops in her track she's like wait a minute everyone knows who clark gable is mm-hmm. uh we see kirk sort of carefully guiding her across the street and she's like oh i'm so excited to see this clark gable movie with you and he's like who the fuck is clark gable and she's like you know what's so weird this guy who I've been helping out, Dr. McCoy, also doesn't know who Clark Gable is. And Kirk is like, excuse me, Dr. Who? Uh, my my third <laughs> thruple partner. My third thruple partner? He's like freaking out. He runs back across the street to the mission to be like, oh my God, McCoy is here. And McCoy like steps out on to the street uh and and he's like oh my god mccoy and edith healer steps back into the street because of all of this commotion between kirk and mccoy and a car comes and mccoy sees the car and he goes to jump into the street to save her and all kirk can do is put him in a bear Mm -hmm. hug and hold him there knowing that behind him edith is getting hit by a car and die. We see Kirk and Spock now in their uniforms step back out of the Guardian of Time. We we're, we cut there. Um, like McCoy is like, do you know what you've done? And Kirk's like, yes, I do. And he's sobbing. He's like actively like sobbing, still like bear hugging. It's brutal. McCoy. Um, it's really brutal. Uh, but then like a moment later, we see them step out back to meet the fellow landing crew and McCoy leaps out moments afterwards. And now we have the final line that Harlan Ellison wrote that's still in the script. Time has resumed its shape. Oh, I mean, that is, that is a nice line. This, yeah. this is full and then of it says, Iconic yeah. lines iconic it says all is as it was before many such journeys are possible let me be your gateway Ooh, Ooh, fun. Poor Ooh, fun. Oh, 
Uhura's like, Captain, the Enterprise is here. The Enterprise is back. Thank God. And Kirk says, let's get the hell out of here. And they're beamed up. And that's the end of the episode. Beautiful. The network seriously objected to that last line. They're like, hell! Oh, Oh, I gasped and (coughs) coughed. But basically everyone was like, no, like we need, like there is no other word that is correct for this moment emotionally. And there isn't, honestly. Like, like they slap you in the face at the end of this episode and just leave you there holding your face, like with it stinging. That's the sort of emotionally. I just, I I didn't have the cough. I just burped. (laughs) Yeah. So that's. The city on the edge of forever. My God. I, 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 right? there was no way I could have been prepared for the, the ebb and flow of time during this episode. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you, I had to rewind a few times because I was watching yeah. something and I just realized, I'm like, I don't, I can't, I'm not taking everything in. Like, there's so much going on here. Even though, like, it's just in terms of the setup mm-hmm. and these characters. And, like, I kept going back to what they were saying. And especially with, like, um, Joan Collins and Edith and being like, mm-hmm. what does she know? What does she not know? What's the implication of this stuff? Like, it, there was a yeah. lot of layers in this that I was not expecting. And I'm like, I really, Missy, you've yeah. got to pay attention to this. You've, you've got to yeah. make sure that you know what is happening because I felt like every single decision they were making was going to be important because yeah. we know it's time travel. Yeah, yeah. it was, oh my and God, it, compelling. It really is. Top compelling. shelf. This uh, is we get, it, a great episode. Yeah. Like this is, you you called it iconic. It truly yeah. is. My God. I mean, look, you can tell despite my attitude through this whole thing. I had yeah. a ride and I'm so, yeah. I was on mr harlan's wild ride and and even though he just designed the idea of it and everyone else built the track i was happy uh missy do you want to hear what mr harlan's wild ride was originally Yes, please the original outline did not feature mr Uh, dr mccoy i'm reading this verbatim this is verbatim from the uh the city on the edge of forever page on uh uh memory alpha fandom and it also it takes really heavily from these are the voyages and the star trek oh, compendium cool, cool. Um, so this is pretty yeah, pretty so darn it's accurate basically quoting yeah. other stuff um allison's original story outline and first draft uh had an enterprise crewman named beckwith who was dealing drugs among the crew he murdered a fellow crewman who was going to rat him out and was and and uh, either escaped to the planet the ship was orbiting or they had a whole court martial where they found him guilty. And then Kirk's like, now we take him to the nearest abandoned planet to shoot him dead, to put him in front of a firing squad. Uh, they go down to the planet where they notice there's radiation over a hill. Now they have to travel to see what the radiation is with Beckwith in tow, not dead yet. That's when they meet the guardians who are supposed to be this tall, ancient spooky race. And that's where we get the lines of like, we, uh, you know, since before your race was born, since before your sun burned hot in the sky behind them is an empty ancient city. That's the city on the edge of forever. 
that they just walked all over. Can you imagine if we got a bunch of like uh, Africa, USA, just walking around the rocks, <laughs> oh my God, yes. Vasquez rocks yeah. in this fucking episode as if we needed more. <sighs> That's when they see the time vortex back when falls through it. And they immediately go back up to the ship, which has become a pirate ship. The Enterprise has become a pirate ship called the Condor, full of renegade humans. They have to go back down to the Guardians. They go to Chicago in 1930s, where Kirk falls in love with uh, Edith uh, Keeler, who he knows to start with needs to die in order to restore history. So he knows this is the third act and he hasn't even met the love interest yet. Um, they finally, with the help of a likeless World War I veteran called Trooper, who dies during the episode, they find Beckwith and Kirk doesn't stop him from saving Edith. He can't stop himself. Spock stops both of them. And then... In a brief epilogue, Spock visits the grieving Kirk in his quarters and attempts to console him, saying, no other woman was offered the universe for love, which is a beautiful line. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so there's a lot of reasons that wasn't usable. I, 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 so... I was listening to this again. This is one of those moments where I feel like the audio audio <laughs> medium is failing you, the audience. I yep. had my hands it was on beautiful. my face the entire time. Yep. My eyes were closed because I was taking all this in, and I was all I could think to myself is, "This dude wrote like an HBO six yes! episode limited series that he thought yeah! they could make for seventy nine cents, and within fifty minutes." He had entire crowds. He had two Fuck different revival style crowd also, scenes. One with a person being like, oh, like screw yeah. aliens. And then like Spock and Kirk have a fight about it. And then another one with Edith Keeler in front of a huge crowd of people. And he's like, 79 cents. Now, you only need six extras, but they need to do what 100 people would do. I am judging this story Harlan, based what? on a summary. That is, you know, it, it's like a photocopy, a photocopy of someone's, someone's mm-hmm. like imagination. But I'm just going to give this judgment right now. That sounds like dog shit. That sounds like it would be it's, one of yeah. the most bumbling, worst episodes. They basically got the best part yeah. of his story. Time travel, can't change it, falling in love and made it an actual dramatic episode of TV. It made it a, yeah. a good story. Like... This is all these, again, this is Gene fucking hiring all of these short story writers Mm -hmm. because he wants prestige because he's just like trying to star fuck. And then they all come in. They don't know what they're doing. And then it becomes this. Then all of a sudden you got jazz music and people crawling through windows all because Gene like wanted to do this. But here's the thing is somehow this clusterfuck ended up making one of the best episodes that we've ever seen. And that's something that's that, that Justman said. And I'll like, I have, I have a like a couple more wild things, but the thing that Justman said is like, look, like this is a great script. And I think if anyone else had turned it in, I would just be like so happy. But 
apparently this script and we can read it there are books like of it out and the original script won a writer's guild award harlan ellison submitted his own unproduced script fuck which won an award he got up on stage ranted about what? like cre- like creative I mean, I freedom guess he, and like not being censored literally he did make an HBO limited prestige series that's what the deal told him yeah. i was right yeah yeah and like and then like when he like got off the stage he like shook the award at Roddenberry and Justman as if he was like telling them fuck you and they're like take your unproducible yeah, script. Whatever. You know what? It's fine. It's show oh business. God. But apparently it was so beautiful. It was just written so beautifully Emily. that Justman was honestly sad Emily. that they aren't able to do, do you it. You know what he did? He wrote the right what? script at the wrong time. <gasps> so correct because they were saying like if this was the outer limits like if this was its own fucking movie that's why they had joseph pevney do this one because they're like this is a movie script if this wasn't production code (laughs) number 28 if this wasn't literally one of the last episodes we're trying to shit out that'd be it he wrote the right script for the wrong time yeah he really did um the so the end I forgot for Beckwin, our guy who at the beginning we see him in the teaser, we don't see him all episode, and then we deal with him at the end. He jumps back into the time vortex, but they just put him in the sun so that he can live his own death over and over and over again, which is metal as fuck and very Harlan Ellison. And that's kids. <laughs> but and that kids is why you don't do drugs. Yep. Yep. Um, so essentially, like the reason there are a couple reasons it could not be produced the way it was. First off, Roddenberry was like, all right, people don't do drugs on my ship. They don't deal drugs on my ship. Like, that's just not the way it is. And remember, like Hellison was one of the first people hired. So he didn't have that much to go on. He was hanging out on fucking set all the time, but he still couldn't figure out what was going on. So he just kind of wrote his own thing. And Ron Berry was like, people don't do that. And he later had a quote that was like, he had my Scotty selling drugs. And Harlan would get so indignant. He's like, it wasn't Scotty. And it's like, dude, the point still stands. Like the issue was with the like lawlessness amongst the crew in this sort of utopia place. Um, <laughs> Harlan, he, he had a quote where he's like, there are special flourishes that every writer puts into their writing that make it the reason why they write the thing that they write. Like they put their own heart and soul in it and they just change it in Hollywood. They'll just take out your lines and your special little things that make you happy. And it's like, my dude, your special little things were mammoths like, running through scenes and gigantic sparkling beings like sending people into the heart of the sun it, what? it's just like this what 
this wouldn't have existed if they didn't put this effort into it. So it's like, dude, at least the idea for your story got out there. But if you're so precious about it, don't agree to work for other people to make fucking shit if you can't emotionally handle it. But again, whatever, he just mm -hmm. kept this weird fucking grudge his whole life for being a person yeah. who creatively got paid and you're gonna be a whiny little bitch about it when there are other people yeah. who would have killed much like the people in his story to be able to get the opportunity that yep. he had. But instead he's going to whine like it a is. little creative poop head. He, he really did. Like they sent, uh, they, cause they kept asking him, they kept giving him opportunities to change things. They kept trying to explain like, this cannot be the case because of budget. Rewrite it without crowd scenes, like super reasonable shit. Um, they sent, uh, Shatner over to his house at one point to see if he was making the changes he was. And <laughs> Shatner's like, he was screaming at me from the start and like ordered me off his property. And Harlan's like, he was sitting on my couch and he was seeing how many lines he had versus Leonard Nimoy. And I'm like, I bet he did do that. But also... Like, Harlan is a crazy asshole. Like, his whole thing is like, well, John D.F. Black would have agreed with me. He was the kind of guy that would have either written it perfectly if he had to change it, or he would let you argue with him about, like, what changes need to be made. That's very true. John D.F. Black was really easy on those writers in that he tried not to rewrite their shit. And it didn't fucking work. He couldn't keep that job and he couldn't, like do it as well but it's like every time harlan has something to say it's well so and so doesn't like so and so well this person doesn't like that person well this person would have agreed with me he and he's like must get rid of toxic he's very toxic yeah i don't i he's like I, shatner one of my one of the personality traits yeah. i hate the most is grudge holders i really fucking hate people yeah like, like and he's super like and that and he it. and he holds it against people he's like shatner didn't like it because i was giving too much stuff to nimoy and nimoy was the real like juice of the show and roddenberry always agreed with shatner and so he sided with him over nimoy and it's like dude this had nothing to do with nimoy and shatner it had nothing to do with who was siding with who over this. It has this. to it's, do with writing an unfilmable. You script. wrote an unfilmable award-winning script. Again, this is yeah. where we're going to have to end it. It was the right yes. script at the wrong time. Yes. But this was the right episode yep. for the right time for me. Yes. And, and if you want to know, if you want to see uh, what he wrote, what his original story was, there is a um, an adaptation uh, by IDW Publishing. It's a five-issue comic book series titled Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever. So I recommend that to anyone who is curious. There you go. There's also his whole book where he writes about it and all his Homework. fucking grudges. Homework for all of you who are listening. Yes. Um, Missy... Thank you so much. We have oh we God. have talked for what so long. This, I didn't again. This this is going to be up there with Spacey. These I think will probably be the two longest yeah. episodes yeah. we ever have this series. I mean, I don't know. There might be more iconic ones out there, but yeah, I was. But this uh, is this, this episode was as on fire as we were during this discussion. <laughs> I, yep. I hope I hope yep. you all have have been able to like really through the transference of energy see how much yes. we enjoyed this experience and i i hope if you don't yeah it, i i hope this brings you all joy like it did us yeah i agree i absolutely agree um watch it 
watch it look look into more of harlan ellison's fucking bullshit because it's just really funny almost he's like a character uh and thank you so much captain missy missy thank you please no matter what time or place we're in live long and prosper i will forever at the edge (laughs) of my city live long and prosper yes Okay, if it's a seven-day marriage, you have other issues going on. Can you hear that sneezing? Yeah. You okay? That's immense. You okay? This is going to be a great outtake, but oh my God, seriously, are you okay? Yeah. That was so much sneezing. Is that what was in your... Oh my God. Sorry, this is disgusting. This is a disgusting thing, people. He just sneezed out one of those, like, you you know when you get a hard booger? Oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm, what he just mm-hmm. did. And I just touched it. So Aww. I'm going to go wash my hands. Hey. Yeah, go for that. Go for that. How did I not know that Gail was played by Megan Maloney? This is the... Alex! You told me this weeks ago. You had this discussion. You're having this again. <laughs> Literally, this is the second time Alex has walked up to me and said, Missy, how did I not know that Gail in Bob's Burgers is voiced by Megan Maloney? You do know. Wait, what? Wait, what? Gale and Bob's Burgers? Wait, do you not know this? What the fuck is happening? What universe am I living in? This is one of the most obvious things to me. I have no idea. What is happening? I just didn't draw the connection. We're having a time ripple. Holy shit. Holy shit. Right? Forrest is also... Forrest also didn't know and he's excited. You knew! (laughs) Shake your head through the door! Missy, 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 someone stepped back in time yes, and kept yes, however he got that piece of information, having, kept it from I'm him. I'm a reverse Mandela effect where I feel like I'm the only <laughs> person in the universe that somehow knew that Megan Maloney boasts Gale in Bob's Burgers. What the fuck is happening You're to totally me, Emily? Right. I'm at the epicenter of this something <laughs> weird. I swear, someone stepped through fucking time. This is time. genuinely uh, one of the funniest things that I've ever <laughs> done this to me twice oh my god <laughs> okay sorry go this is gonna be yeah. everyone it's listening wild. this is one of the most fantastic edits and recordings and i'm really glad that you're gonna hear like this is my domestic life this is what happens to me this is my my relationship with my husband it. and i love him i love everything about okay. this um